This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. Getting hearing aids is no picnic. It's expensive, confusing, time-consuming, right? Actually, no. With the Jabra Enhance Select and Premium Package, you can get state-of-the-art hearing aids and professional care without the hassle. Jabra Enhance offers advanced rechargeable hearing aids delivered to your door for thousands less than you'd expect. No offices, no waiting rooms. Just take the online hearing test to personalize your hearing aids. Enjoy speech clarity, noise reduction, and hearing technology that adapts to your unique sound environments. And the audiology team can provide adjustments to your hearing aids remotely on request for three years. And the best part? You'll likely pay thousands less than if you went to a traditional audiologist. And now for a limited time, save $200 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhanced.com and enter promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhanced.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All righty. Today is July the 24th in 2023, and my guest is Malcolm Collins. Malcolm is a parent, a polymath, serial entrepreneur, education nerd, pronatalist, and a five times bestselling author, including the Pragmatist's Guide series. He has a podcast and a YouTube channel called Based Camp. He's a proliferate creator and has very interesting things to say about demographic collapse, the future of education, the nature of consciousness. Even more importantly for the themes of this podcast, Malcolm has a lot of ideas about the governance and foundation of new network states. Malcolm, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here and I absolutely love what you guys are doing with Prospera. Fantastic. Yeah, I remember when we met for the first time, you have this infectious energy that I really like and appreciate. Did I forget anything important in the introduction that's worth knowing about no, you? No, I mean, probably the, the thing we're best known for is running the pronatalist movement right now. But, you know, I've done all the classic Silicon Valley diaspora stuff from venture capital to private equity to, to all of that. I expect a big life overlap with a lot of your, your listeners, you know, people thinking about the future. Different charter cities make a lot of sense for this this sort of crowd and this mindset. Um, and you guys are the the furthest along and most established of all the projects. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to get an introduction to pronatalism, which I've heard about and I'm pretty sure I'm aligned with, but haven't yet gotten the proper introduction. So we we'll get to that. Um, besides, um, you say you do everything together with your wife. You write books together. You're doing the same podcast. You own mm -hmm. businesses together. What's the origin story of that? How did you two meet and get to do all that together? So this is actually a very interesting question that ties into pronatalism to some extent. One of the problems that we have with our society right now is if you look around the world and no one has really figured out how to socially marry prosperity, a high level of education and gender equality with anything close to sustainable fertility rates. Except for maybe arguably parts of Israel, but we can get to that later in the podcast. Um, but this is actually a big problem because if it turns out that the only groups that will exist in the future, the only groups that are sustainable 
are the ones that lack gender equality, then things like gender equality are going to disappear. To that end, what we can say is whatever the way we're structuring gender equality in our, our current society, it doesn't seem copacetic with high fertility rates, which means that we need to create new models around that. And that's where this comes from for us, which is to say that we are equal in our relationship. I mean, we, we do admit sort of gender dimorphia that human males and females are different, um, but we are equal in that we hold all of the same positions, but in a way that it's very different than the gender equality sale that's given in, in general society which is that you can be completely atomized and completely equal, whereas we say, well, maybe the way that you pair gender equality with a sustainable fertility rate is you treat the husband and wife as sort of a combined unit. And it's a hypothesis, and we'll see if it works. If it does work, it could be one of the groups that's represented in the future. If it doesn't work, I mean, every new little social experiment we do at this age is just an experiment, right? That's sort of what we're doing here is a social experiment. And we were the first couple to raise a married couple search fund. I don't know if your audience is familiar with search funds. They're like miniature private equity funds. And when we did it, uh, it was seen as crazy to do it as a married couple. Just wild. And now uh, it's, it's so common to do it as a married couple. Uh, when we were speaking on this at Harvard, you know, we were talking with the students. They go, oh, you know, the three types of search fund, uh, single, dual, and married. And we're like, oh, that's cool. So I think for a lot of this stuff, you know, if you just uh, blaze a trail and you show that it can be economically advantageous to your investors or whoever hires you, then it, it becomes a trend. You know, people are- What is a marriage right? search fund? Yeah. Oh, a married search fund? Yeah. Uh, basically, we went to a bunch of rich people and we begged them for money. Um, what do people call this? Fundraising. We fundraised for a private equity fund. Um, but it was a small private equity fund. Uh, and it was just my wife and I who were working at it. And then we went around looking for a company to buy. And after buying that company or a collection of companies is actually what we ended up doing, a small roll-up. Then we dissolved the private equity company and we transformed the staff, my wife and I, into the managers of this new company. So that's what we did. Uh, and actually, you know, we were talking a bit before this about traveling around the world. Another interesting new way of doing search funds that we had invented was the idea of doing a, a sort of stateless search fund. And by that, what we mean is whenever, like after about the first year of doing searching, whenever we would look at a deal, we, we got rid of our house and we would just go and move right next to wherever the company was. So we'd get an Airbnb like two blocks from the CEO's house or from the front door of the office and just walk in every day during due diligence because it would show them uh, how like intense we were and how much we were serious and really give us an edge over the larger private equity players in terms of like purchase price and feeling of commitment from us to the buyers. But the search fund model is separate from the model of the marriage that you proposed. That just happens to be something that you did together or how did that related? You could that argue related? that they're aligned. I mean, mm. uh, you know, when we did a startup, we did it together with search funds. Just no one had ever done it mm. as a married team before. So I would say it's an extension of our marriage philosophy, which is that we try to do everything together as gender dimorphic equals. And by that, what we mean is we admit to ourselves that men and women process the world differently, that we have different skill sets. And in the same way that like a man and a woman within a house uh, might as equals take on different roles of house management, like I do the fixing stuff, I 
control like the outside of the house, i.e. the lawn maintenance, the gardening, everything like that. And she does all the internal maintenance of the house, except for like mechanical failures. Like that's an example of a dimorphism in how we're handling something. But we also apply that to like the way we run our businesses, right? Uh, to the way we run even personal things like our emails often dump into a single email. Like a lot of people will think they're talking to me and it's actually her because I don't manage all my email. We just represent ourselves to the world with different faces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm. You mentioned already that you and your wife traveled a lot. Can you talk a bit about what you learned from all that travel and how that looked like for you? Yeah. So I've been saying before, I think uh, nine countries for every six months in one location. And I think it's something like 24 countries for every one month in one location. It's been a while since I've looked. Um, but yeah, so we lived sort of all over the world um, and, and traveled a lot. And I guess all I can say is just that I never really... Places aren't that meaningfully different when you're talking about sort of the educated, wealthy class around the world. Um, in a way, that's really scary for me because it shows that the world's becoming more and more of a monoculture. Um, and we're losing, I think, the cultural diversity that makes us strong as a species. And we're beginning to see, I think, this urban monoculture become more and more aggressive about erasing the cultures it sees backwards. Um, which is, I think, uh, usually the sign of, of evil to me, and it's, it's not a great sign. Um, so that, that does worry me. On the, on the other hand, this urban monoculture has such a low fertility rate that it's going to disappear eventually anyway, which is also really interesting because, you know, when you travel the world, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's all I'd say. It's just things are not as different as they used to be, and I sort of feel like I maybe missed an error when I hear about my dad traveling the world It seems like the places he went, like they were really unique and different often. And I don't feel that as much anymore, which is one exciting thing about the Charter City movement. It's for me, it represents a chance to really try things quite differently. Um, you know, when I'm in Korea versus the US versus the UK, like if I'm talking about like local governance structures, if I'm talking about local company structures, they're really not that different from each other. Gender dynamics, really not that different from each other. The way people relate to, to their, their world, morality, their environment, all pretty similar. You, you get some superficially different holidays and stuff, but it's, it's mostly different colors on the same medium. Yeah. What did you learn about, or that's something that my wife and I learned. We've also been traveling together for the past three years. We've been nomadic, spent a lot of time in, uh, in Central America, in Mexico and Honduras mm -hmm. and Guatemala bit of a uh, couple of months in Europe. So, you know, changing a lot, but also building hubs. What did you learn about unbundling your life? And I'm asking because it's something I learned a lot about. So how to do like healthcare different. And I'm already kind of thinking about education options for my children in the future. Like before, it's all these things that you take for granted, right? So you just send your kids to school where you are. Was that something that's travel opened for you too, kind of to unbumble your life in a way? Yeah, so because our company was international, there was a long period where we would split our time between the US and Peru, one month Peru, one month the US, every other month we'd switch. I, I think when you're talking about healthcare, yeah, I, it really changes how you relate to healthcare. We did this thing called the Peruvian exchange, which meant in Peru, we'd always buy all our antibiotics, you know, just stock up on huge, huge supplies of antibiotics, get all our medical treatment done. But in the US, you know, you have Amazon. And I think, Uh, people underestimate how convenient Amazon is just to be able to get like any product you want at a reasonable quality. 
it's not something that's actually available in most of the world. And it also changes, you know, when you're in East Asia, right? So in East Asia, if you're in China, you're in Korea, you can be like, oh, I can get the stuff I would get on Amazon easily. Not if you don't have a national ID card. In some countries, you're also kind of screwed if you don't have a national ID card. But also, I would not go to get healthcare in the United States or in Germany anymore just because it's so much more expensive, yeah. right? <laughs> and well, also- yeah. And I mean, I've been reading more and more horror stories about sort of ESG and healthcare hiring mm-hmm. and, and it leading to really horrible outcomes. And it's, it's pretty scary to me. I mean, right now, we're sort of forced to do everything in the U.S. because of our current living situation. But we also moved to another weird living situation, which is to say now we live on a a rural farm, just got our chickens, which is quite a different experience than the traveling around. But yeah, I hear what you mean was unbundling, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of how you structure your life. Mm -hmm. So now you're kind of rebundling it to a rural place? Well, I... It's interesting. We do still really have it unbundled, but it's more like we have our daily life unbundled from our socializing. So for example, next week we're going to New York. Uh, We do some favor exchange to get access to an apartment for two days, like once every other month. Um, And then we do a series of parties there. So two parties at night, two parties during the day. Um, And the idea is, is this allows us to continue to build up our social network in like a major city, uh, which is really necessary if you're continuing to do this sort of networking Um, And we also focus a lot more on traveling for socializing. So, you know, going to different cities and being like, okay, now we're bundling all of our socializing for Austin, all of our socializing for SF. So, I mean, I still think that there's a level of unbundling where we don't really invest in any sort of social life with our community out here. Um, And I agree. I think that there's this perception that you need your life to be perfectly bundled instead of saying to yourself, okay, what are the different aspects of our life? You know, like day to day with the kids versus building up my social capital and how can this be done most efficaciously with the uh, assets I have access to. Yeah, that's uh, this is great unbundling happening in terms of location. It's also something that the Charter or Startup Cities movement can do a lot mm-hmm. with, right? In this place, you can do education for your children or healthcare. In the other place, you know, you have your best friends, you socialize or you go for one or two months a year to like fundraise for your company and the other one is like where you see quiet and sit down and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. write a book for one for for the year that that's kind of how i imagine the, that life in the future to look like let's talk a bit about demographic collapse what is it and why is it important yeah so i mean i had mentioned i was living in korea for a while i was actually a director of strategy at the number one early stage vc firm out there i sort of like their version of y combinator And, you know, I had to chart the future of where the economy was going. And it became clear to me, you know, if you look at Korea's current fertility rate, 100 years from today, if it stays around what it is, which is like 0.79, 0.8, depending on what you're looking at, that means there will be 6.4 great grandchildren for every 100 Koreans. And this is assuming it doesn't continue to go down. It is going down every year. A, A society... Like, like the way that we have built our, our economic infrastructure in the developed world and in the developing world, to be honest, you cannot have a 95% population collapse and have like the economy work. Like, like you can't have cities work the way we structured. I mean, even if you're just looking at like sewer systems and stuff like that, everything begins to fall apart really quickly before we get there. And you can go to Korea and you can be like, oh, they must be freaking out about this. No, what are they doing now? They've got the four nose movement. You know, this is a feminist movement in Korea right now, which is like, 
no dating, no sex, no kids, no guys or something like that. Like they are doubling down. And what I got from that coming back to the U.S. is it felt like traveling back in time, right? Because we are today where career was in the 90s. But in the U.S., if our fertility rate continues to fall at the rate it has over the past 10 years, and we have one generation every 30 years, for every 100 Americans, there's only going to be 4.3 great-grandchildren. Now, unlike the Korean numbers I gave, this is assuming that the numbers continue to go down. But that is really, really bad. And you're seeing this all around the world. So people hear this and they go, yeah, but you could fix this with immigration, right? Unfortunately, by the UN's own statistics, as of 2019, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean combined fell below replacement rate. Okay, that's, this, that's old news, right? In fact, countries fall below replacement rate when the average citizen is earning over 5,000 USD per year. Presumably, we want everywhere in the world to be in that sort of a situation. If we can't marry our existing society with a sustainable fertility rate, uh, that's going to have a number of really bad long-term consequences, as, as I said at the beginning. Like, if it turns out that, like, gender equality is unsustainable in the long run or human prosperity is unsustainable or cultures in which everyone is allowed to be educated are unsustainable, then eventually those cultures will disappear. I mean, in the short term, what you can do is you can have sort of parasitic social groups that convert from these social groups that still have high fertility rates. But that doesn't work forever. Groups become resistant to that. We can actually see this in Amish families. You know, the longer they've been in the Amish tradition, the fewer uh, kids deconvert uh, within every generation. And it makes sense. I mean, of course, you're going to have cultural evolution happen here. The iterations of the culture that were better at maintaining intergenerational fidelity are going to be the ones that survive. I mean, uh, oh, and you, you also likely have some level of, of, of uh, sociological, like biological evolution happening here. Uh, but that's a maybe too controversial a topic. But the point being is, is this gets really interesting. And it gets really interesting when it comes to charter cities. So if we ignore all of the wider social implications of this, um, if, well, not if, it is happening in the developed world, almost exactly correlational to wealth. So there are some uh, outliers that we can get into if that's interesting to you. Um, uh, fertility rate goes down. Right. Um, and a lot of people are like, well, why does that, you know, the, the people in, in poor countries are still having a lot of kids. Right. And it's like, yes, but definitionally, they matter less to the world economy. Um, uh, so them having a lot of kids isn't really helping the world economy that much because and, and if those countries become rich, then their fertility rate also falls. So you haven't really fixed the issue here. But the point here being it's we for a long time have lived in a world where everything grew on average, you know, um, and that was happening for two reasons. It was because the number of people in the world economy was growing exponentially. That meant the number of workers was growing exponentially and the number of consumers was growing exponentially. But the productivity per worker was growing linearly. Technology was growing exponentially. But for about the past 200 years, the productivity per worker has been a linear growth. Now, what this means is as population begins to decline exponentially, now, AI may be a literal deus ex machina here, but putting that aside, what we could have is a world economy that's shrinking on average, global stock markets that are shrinking on average. And this is where charter cities get really interesting because then the question becomes, well, where do you invest? Like all of a sudden, stock markets become unsafe for most investment vehicles, similar to sort of what happened to Detroit real estate. When you know an asset is always going to decline in value over time or, or, or something's declining in value in aggregate, it loses most of its value really quickly. 
because it no longer makes sense to hold that thing. Everybody just floods out of it all of a sudden. Um, and so then where do you put your wealth, right? Historically, we sort of lived in this world where if I owned a scarce asset like land or gold or something like that, like with a fixed quantity, it increased in value over time because the number of humans was increasing. And so the number of people who wanted it was increasing. But if that changes, sort of the fundamental of, of our entire economic structure changes. And so then the question, okay, where is value in that world? Value in that world is within populations, specifically gated populations. Now, these can be socially gated populations or geographically gated populations that are able to maintain high fertility rate and are technophilic. So populations like the Amish, they, they will likely continue to grow like assets around them do continue to grow and like land around them does grow at an unusual rate but they're never going to be like economically like massively dynamic because they're not engaging with technology but because the groups because it's almost unheard of for a group to be both technophilic and have a high fertility rate any charter city any region or any social group that can combine those two things is going to become where the vast majority of the world's wealth in the future gets focused. And that changes so much about how our species structures itself. Yeah, I have so many follow-up questions about the economics of that. But one interesting thing is that it leads to an, a good prediction, right? So that collapse will be leading to a divestment from the developed world to trying to discover all these new growth markets. And if the Charter City movement at that point is a sizable force, is like, 100 or 200 of them that have kind of proven models and track records and they're growing, then mm -hmm. sort of a lot of capital would shift there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it begins to make sense. I mean, charter cities begin to make sense in a huge way at that point because it immediately makes sense for people to set up sort of isolated uh, economies. And by that, what I mean, so I, I think a lot of people, like we are, you know, running the pronatalist movement, we're connected with all of the, the various pronatalist families, right? The thing that all the pronatalist families see, like the technophilic pronatalist families, is that the only thing that's able to motivate a high fertility rate is deviant cultures. And by deviant, what I mean is just deviant from sort of this urban monoculture, right? So like, if you're, if you, who still has a high fertility rate? The Amish, like they're weirdos, basically. The Hasidic population, the Haredi population, they, they have a high fertility rate, right? Um, and, then, and then families like ours, but I mean, we're considered pretty weird. But the problem is, is that because this urban monoculture can really only replace its members through deconverting people of other cultural groups, you know, it has gotten more and more focused at control of the education system in these big developed countries and taking those kids, right? Like that's how it survives. It's not like a malicious thing. It's just that the iterations of it that got better at doing that are the iterations of it that are better represented in positions of power now because they're the iterations that we're converting people. Um, so anyways, what this means is that a lot of these families are now looking like how much longer can I stay in X developed country uh, where I'm safe, where my kids aren't going to be converted to this urban monoculture, um, you know, taught to hate me. Uh, because I'm I'm different in some way. So everybody's thinking about this right now in the movement, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, if you can create a a a what is shown to be a safe haven for these families, it's a huge economic opportunity in the future. However, if your own fertility rates aren't very high, it's it's not really relevant, I think, to a lot of investor class. 
uh, because it's it's the same problem they'd assume that you know most of the other developed countries are going through. Mm -hmm. So it does play a role for investment decisions, fertility rates in in different countries or growth regions. Well, I imagine it will. So mm -hmm. this is a really interesting question, right? Sometimes it takes a while before the market realizes that things have changed. So I know this was the case like five years ago. I've heard it may not be the case anymore, but there was this crazy thing where, you know, when I was living in Florida and I was looking at getting a house, that the 30-year loans on like an atoll, like a house on an atoll out in the ocean was priced the same as a 30-year loan as a house in like the center of Florida. And it was like, what? That house isn't going to be there in 30 years. Like even conservatives agree on that. They might disagree with causing global warming, but we do know that that atoll is not going to be there in 30 years. Why is this price the same? Um, and recently this has changed because now you need insurance, which sort of prices it in. But um, it, it was one of those things where just some markets hadn't caught up to reality yet. And sometimes markets catch up to reality all at once. When the market does catch up to this all at once, and people realize, wait, why is the world economy sort of crashing all at once, right? Um, if they do recognize this is about fertility rates, right? Well, then they are going to start focusing on that in terms of how they make future investment decisions. Um, now, that could cause a bubble that then explodes and then you get some recalibration afterwards. Um, but the question is, how long does it take for people to realize that the world structure is fundamentally different now that can be a long time because there's a lot of old investors out there who just aren't thinking like that you know when i was in korea and i was doing investment i brought this to my firm and i was like korea doesn't have an economy in 100 years like what are we do we take this into account with our decisions and they said oh, oh well everybody knows this um but nobody really takes it into account with their decisions and so if we do like our investments uh will be made like stupidly like they won't be good as an early stage firm. So we're just going to pretend like it's not true. And I think that's the way a lot of people in the investment world are acting right now, you know? Yeah. I know, you probably get this question all the time and it's a bit of a stupid question or Peter Thiel would say, you know, why questions are overdetermined. But what are kind of the causes for, or how would you describe that urban monoculture that leads to the decline in fertility rates? Well, so this is, we wrote a book on this, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, um, and it sort of talks about how historically, like when we talk about memetics, when most people talk about memetics, they think of like a meme infecting someone and then that meme using that individual to go out and convert other people. Um, but historically, memetics worked a little differently than that. Memes sort of existed in clusters. It, what today we would call like a religion slash a culture. We call it a cultivar in our book. Um, and that these existed sort of sitting on top of human populations and environmental pressures uh, acted evolutionarily on them at the same time as they were acting on our biology. You know, this is how like Judaism and Islam figured out hand washing literally hundreds of years before science did. This is why like, uh, but it also that they sort of co-evolved with the way our brains work to take on certain tasks uh, that, that our brains learn to just expect. So an example of this is almost every older cultural group has some sort of arbitrary self-denial ritual, whether it's rent or Ramadan or Feast of the Firstborn or whatever, right? Um, and this, it turns out, now we know is actually pretty useful. That strengthens the inhibitory pathways in your prefrontal cortex. 
I, I used to be a neuroscientist, so I was, you know, studying this sort of stuff. I mean, it makes it easier to shut down intrusive thoughts and stuff like that. In biology, you can have something called a, a superbug, right? Uh, like a super bacteria or something. Now, these typically evolve in environments like hospitals, where you have a lot of immunocompromised people in like a smaller environment than you would normally have. And then you have all your antibiotics and, and, and stuff like that in the same environment. So they can evolve sort of to become resistant to this. Well, the internet and, and the, the megacity, it sort of created an environment like this where you had these socially immunally compromised people. A lot of them had moved away from their traditions or their older, these older cultural groups. And so they had sort of a, a weakened mimetic immune system. Um, and it allowed for this really, really, um, actually pretty advanced mimetic virus to begin to spread. Um, and this mimetic virus was very, very good at using people to just convert other people, right? To the extent that when these people began to focus on things like child rearing and stuff like that, they were not using the per preferred reproductive strategy of the virus because they could convert more people if they spent all their time converting people um, than they could have kids, especially in these city environments, which had become very expensive to live in. Um, so essentially, it's, a, it's an almost completely evolved set of structures that evolved just because it's very good at converting people um, in a very unique way. And I can go deeper on this if you're interested in it, but it's, it's a fascinating topic and, and pretty threatening, I think, to the future of our species. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want to know what that virus is right now or what are kind of the the ideas behind it and how does it spread and convert other people? Yeah, yeah. so uh, how does it spread? So the virus is actually really interesting. Historically, when a group would try to convert individuals, what they would do is try to convert individuals, right? So they would say, uh, I'm going to convert you specifically, right? The virus works pretty differently. You can think of humans as like nodal clouds. And every one of these nodal clouds is like a made up of all of the humans' uh, interpersonal connections. And these clouds overlap to some extent. Now, historically, when somebody from like a different nodal cloud would come into your nodal cloud, the, the nodal cloud would have like a mimetic immune system, as I said. And what they would do is they would go out and they would um, well, burn you at the state, typically. They'd say, oh, you're different. Let's kill you or get rid of you or reject you. So like if I, I was a Catholic and I came and started preaching in a Protestant country, that would happen to me if I was a Protestant, I started preaching in a Catholic country. Also, the same happened with random cultural mutations. That's what witches were. It was like they have a different way of seeing the world, basically. Let's, let's maintain this intergenerational fidelity. The, the virus works pretty differently than that. Um, it sort of does dynamic deconnecting of anyone who appears to be immune within a nodal network once it has begun to infect that nodal network. Um, basically, it shadow bans people which is really fascinating because people often think of it in terms of like cancellations, but it doesn't really cancel. That's, that's more like a terrorism tactic. It doesn't do that that frequently. It's just if you show yourself resistant to whatever sort of the dominant social narrative is, but it also functions pretty differently and it doesn't try to convert individuals. It tries to convert entire networks at once. And it does this with the promise that as the network converts, we will remove emotional pain from the entire network. If the network agrees to these sort of theories, we remove emotional pain. And it doesn't try to erase the... So historically, the various mimetic clusters, the cultivars, they really cared about sort of group identity. The virus doesn't. So 
if you talk about like a, a, a Catholic group or a Jewish group or a Muslim group that is like really infected with this virus, they uh, may have different holidays, but like their views on gender are about the same. Their views on sexuality are the same. Their views on morality are the same. Their views on science, like what's true and what's not true about the world are about the same. Their views on like the, the, how to relate to the environment are the same. Their views on the future of our species are the same. So it, it creates uniformity, but in the same way that like um, as the strep throat virus, when it kills a red blood cell, it will then wear the sort of skin of that red blood cell to hide itself from the immune system. So let's talk about functionally how it spreads really quickly. So as an organization begins to get affected, the more infected that organization gets, it will begin to grow like tumors. Um, and these tumors that it grows, uh, like a tumor in a human body, begin to uh, sort of demand resources. Like a, in a human body, when you begin to grow a tumor, you'll like begin to demand more blood flow and stuff like that, right? Um, you can see my biology backgrounds coming through here. These tumors will then begin to function only to convert more people to the virus. So that's what like a diversity and inclusion department is, right? It will begin to make sure everyone at the company takes like weekly surveys to just be like, let's make sure we all believe exactly the same things about X, uh, exactly the same things about Y. And what's really interesting, and we talk about uh, how the virus evolves, um, it gets really good at converting everyone within an organization. So it can pretty quickly, like once it's over like 30 to 40% infection of an organization, it can get to like 80, 90, 95% really, really quickly. Um, and once it's done that, it has a problem because all of these infected nodes are contained within an organization. And this is a recently evolved trait, which is really interesting, is the iterations of the virus, which became parasitoidal, i.e. killing the organizations they infected, began to spread more than the ones that didn't. So this is what you saw with like the Occupy Wall Street movement. This is what you saw with like, you know, Gawker, with like the, the feminist movement. It begins to cause infighting to the extent, Chaz, um, to the extent that the organization ruptures um, and, and, and lets out all of the infected individuals like spores into the environment. They now go to new organizations they begin to try to convert those organizations and then set up departments, which again ensure ideological conformity and basically print new members. But what is exactly the virus as it relates to reducing fertility rates? Is it like atomic individualism? Is it like feminism? Or how would you describe it if there's even a way to describe it and um, what its kind of I, dogmas are? So the, uh, a lot of people confuse the virus with the organizations it has infected, right? They'll say, well, feminism has a lot of the virus in it, therefore it's the virus. And I'd say the virus is more like a self-organizing virus. It's not an ideology. It has a promise, which is I will remove in the moment emotional pain, but this promise lacks any sort of long-term sense to it. For example, the progressive party in the US, like the Democratic Party in the US, it used to care about equality, but it has over time become more and more infected with the virus. And so it does things that don't seem to make any sense. It will say something like, let's basically hand out drugs to people on the streets, right? That does remove in the moment emotional pain, but obviously increases inequality because rich people, you know, they can, they, they can send their kids to rehab and stuff like that. You can look at like California saying, oh, we need to remove grades from like public school. Like obviously rich people benefit from that um, because they can still send their kids to like SAT prep and stuff like that. Uh, they can still pressure their kids, 
So those kids end up doing disproportionately well. So it's no longer fighting for equality. It's now just fighting for grades causing in the moment emotional pain. So let's remove them. Um, and so I think that if you, if you, it's very easy to look at it and, and think that the virus has some big ideological objective, but it really doesn't. It's just, we're going to, it's a system of human interaction, which is meant to enforce ideological conformity, grow, and remove in the moment emotional pain. Why this affects fertility rates is because having kids is not part of the virus's plan. Having kids is like a costly thing to do. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And it takes a lot of time you could be spending trying to convert other people or trying to enforce ideological conformity. And so you're just not using sort of its preferred reproductive strategy. You don't really have a place within its system um, and it will attack you. Okay, I'm not sure I got the entire picture yet, right? So, or differently asked, why do people not want to have children anymore or many children anymore, right? So when I observe it in my personal life, I just feel like many women feel they need to just be as successful in their career, or even more successful than men, right? So that makes it often they then compromise on family, especially in their 30s. And at some point they feel like it's too late or they haven't found a partner yet. So these are kind of reasons that I see personally in my life. Yeah, I, I mean, oh. so some wealthy women do do have kids, but they're typically from deviant cultural groups, right? You know, like if I'm a wealthy, like Haredi Jew, I'm gonna have a lot of kids, right? Um, I, I think that uh, what we're seeing here is that the dominant cultural group lacks any mechanisms, whether it's status or anything else or a lifestyle or, I mean, even the way it tells people to structure their lives, you know, make sure you are completely economically stable before you start looking for a partner or having kids. You are not going to breed above repro reproduction rate if you do that. But this is the, 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 what's sold to people. Like, this is culturally normative. This is what you should do. But then the other thing to remember, and this is really important, is it's not just culturally deviant groups that have a lot of kids. The other group that has a lot of kids, because a lot of people are like, oh, kids are so expensive now. But actually, typically, the more money you have, the fewer kids you have. Now, there is a place where fertility rate begins to go up again, but it doesn't get it to above production rate, uh, repopulation rate until a person's at around half a million a year or a household is. So unsustainable for population rise. But the less money you have, typically the more kids you have. And so the question is, what's going on there, right? Um, why is it that the ultra rich and the ultra poor have more kids? Um, it appears to be a, sort of a problem with capitalism. And I love capitalism, but it is, it is not a long-term focused system. And it is very good at dynamically pricing the value of a person's time. Um, and so what it does is the people that the capitalist system sort of thinks have value, it will pay them to live in environments that are not really conducive to having kids. And it will pay for their time in a way where they're not spending their time on kids, which means that they have fewer kids. People who haven't really begun to engage with the capitalist system yet, you know, in countries where they're earning under 5,000 USD per year, like they're not really engaged in the modern economy. They still have a lot of kids. People earning over half a million dollars a year, well, they're also not really engaged in the economy anymore. Uh, not, not in like a day-to-day -day way. So they can also have over a lot of kids. Um, and the only groups that are able to participate in this capitalist system and have a lot of kids are, are the deviant cultural groups that provide their families with some sort of social structure, uh, as well as some sort of like ideological motivation to have a lot of kids. Yeah, that's brings that's very interesting to me like i also like capitalism but i do see it ring true to me to some degree that it doesn't deliver meaning 
right? So meaning is something that's often lost. Capitalism doesn't know how to create it. In a way, it stands in its way or eradicates it almost, right? So by rationalizing yeah. your time. So that's an interesting line of thought. I'm curious though, so can you now that we have a bit of a view of the lay of the land, the problem of declining fertility rates, what is the solution space and what's the pronatalist movement and how is it trying to address? Yeah, well, and this is why charter cities are so important to the pronatalist movement. So a lot of people say, oh, you're trying to get fertility rates up. And we're like, no, we are on the Titanic. It's going to hit the iceberg. We are trying to get life, life, lifeboats ready. It's very similar to like a global warming organization. And they're like, oh, you're trying to. Uh, I love it when people are like, oh, you're trying to infinitely increase the world's population. It's like that's like telling a global warming organization. Oh, are you trying to freeze the world? Are you trying to make it colder every year? And it's like, no, but, you, you know, we do see a worrying trend here. And if it continues. Uh, but also like a global warming organization, or I think most sane ones these days, we'd also say it's also likely that we can't do anything about it before disaster strikes at this point. So the Pronatalist Foundation, which we run, says no matter what, we are going to have demographic collapse in the developed world and it will wreak havoc on the economy. Our goal as an organization is to preserve as much of our existing human diversity as possible into the future, right? And so what this means for us is to sort of ready the lifeboats and charter cities are one of those lifeboats. They are in an environment where high fertility families can congregate, where their kids won't try to be homogenized and we can hopefully create pluralistic communities of sort of deviant cultural groups that motivate uh, people to have fertility rates in spite of... Uh, you know, being technophilic, believing in at least some degree of gender equality, believing in like wide access to education and prosperity. Fantastic. I like that. What about technological solutions as in like artificial wombs or something like that? Or Yeah, so we help fund that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So our organization, if anyone is interested in funding things like artificial wombs, like IVG technology, which will allow gay people to have kids that are 100% biologically theirs, we sort of act as an underground railroad for funding of those projects because a lot of them have to be secret. All I can say is a lot of that stuff is happening behind the scenes. Uh, we are really excited for that technology to, to hit the market. I do not think it will solve the problem. I think actually if you talk to people who are sort of in this urban monoculture, a lot of them will say actually bringing children into the world is evil. Humans cause suffering and the world would be better without humans anyway. So, you know, just giving them this technology doesn't really do anything. But if we create groups that are open to using it, it will allow those groups to greatly increase their fertility rate. Yeah. But is there anything already available that you can use? Or what's kind of the state of the art of fertility technology when you're like... A, I mean, um, our family, uh, we use some spicy technology. Yeah, uh, so all about our it. family, for example, uses IVG technology. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, not IVG. We use polygenic risk score screening technology. So we do full genome sequencing on our embryos and we choose the embryo order based on uh, sort of their genetic health um, or how, genetic health is the wrong word because different families would have a different interpretation based on what our culture and our family values. We look at things like lower probability of developing depression, stuff like that. And we can tell that by looking at the embryos. Uh, we can also tell people like, how accurate is this? 
you can tell because the studies will tell you, oh, this is the error margin. This is the P-score on this study. It's it's not like people ask this like it's some sort of mystery. Like, how how accurate is it exactly? It's like, we know exactly how accurate it is. It's not like a mystery. But yeah, that's something that we engage with as a family. And using this type of technology, eventually people will be able to do things like select for propensity that the person wants to be a parent themselves, which could lead to much higher fertility rates in the long run if you're only having kids who want to be parents, right? I, I can see certain family or cultural groups choosing weird strategies like that. Yeah, it's on my podcast, you can be controversial where futurists and transhumanists and technophilic and everything like that here. So that's cool. So we're open to discussing these things. I'm curious, I'm and my wife are thinking about having children soon. How can we start kind of learning about all these options, fertility technology? I mean, if you guys want to do IVF, if you're doing IVF anyway, I would say it's a complete no-brainer to do full genome sequencing. Um, you can say, I won't look at the controversial stuff. I won't look at IQ. I won't look at height. Fine. But at least you'd be able to look at things like cancer rates and stuff like that. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but then you're selecting between embryos based on health. They already do that in labs. That They select, they choose the embryos that look the prettiest. That's what they're doing right now when they're choosing an embryo. Anyway, but the point being is, is you can choose what data you look at. Uh, it's an additional fee to IVF. Other than that, it's just normal IVF. If you want spicier stuff, if you're like, how do I find out like IQ and stuff like that? Email me and my wife. We'll connect you with the people. Because, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, people don't want to be public about it. Uh, and I get it. Yeah, I get it too. I would be concerned a bit about what people think in my social circles. Then again, I'm also getting more and more confident and just doing it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things we talk about. So if you talk about the future of the human species, when I'm like, hey, um, the technophilic groups with high fertility, they're the only ones who matter. A lot of people will look, especially like far conservatives, and they're like, this group or this group is having tons of kids. And I'm like, are they technophilic? Then they don't matter because when groups and, and people are like, well, what level of technophilia are you talking here? And there are two technologies that are going to define the future of our species right now. AI and fertility technology, Reprotech. And the reason it matters so much is if you look at just current polygenic risk scores in populations. So in developed countries, we can look at polygenic risk scores over time. We are looking at probably a one standard deviation decrease in IQ over the next 75 years. Um, you, you can see this in terms of now some people might be like, I do not believe that IQ is heretical. And it's like, OK, but that's like a religious belief. Like that doesn't seem to be what the data suggests, because I can look at the polygenic scores associated with IQ over time from samples in developed countries. And it's decreasing. It's also directly correlated with lower fertility rates. We also see a decrease in IQ and testing over time. It would be like if I looked at a car and I could predict it will probably go this fast. And then somebody drove that car and that's how fast it went. And people are like, I don't believe that's how fast the car goes. And it's like, I don't know. Like we've measured this from different angles. But this matters because if you're engaging with polygenic risk score selection technology, people don't realize how quickly humans can change based on really strong selective pressures. And what this means is that the groups that are engaging with this, they will very quickly be like, at the same time as other people in developed countries are falling like one standard deviation in IQ, these groups will likely be going up a standard to two standard deviations in IQ. And that is a huge difference in population. 
like the ability of other groups to compete with groups that are engaging with this technology is going to be sort of irrelevant. And then people will be like, well, countries will ban this technology. And it's like, great, then I go to a charter city. There, there will, all you do when you ban this technology is you ban it for poor people, right? Because rich people will find a way. Yeah, that gives me so many ideas or just inspires me to think how the future will look like if we have hundreds of charter cities where we have different, when each of them we can create kind of a different density of developing a certain culture. I'm already mm -hmm. seeing, and I'm pretty sure I'm one of the first ones to see that, that the different places develop very different cultures, right? So they have very different founding ideologies attracting different founding teams that are willing to go into very controversial directions in multiple directions, right? So I'm in Zanzibar right now at the birth of a new community that's kind of much mm -hmm. more, a bit more new agey, right? In Prosper, it's kind of more of a futuristic type. Both are very technophilic, right? And both mm -hmm. have sort of many ideas that are outside of what's sort of the established urban monoculture. It will be so interesting to just see hundreds of those and see where they end up in sort of the cultural evolution of the planet. Yeah, and I was going to say that the big goal of the pronatalist movement, like where I really want to come out of this time with, is to meet these different groups that are going to survive and be relevant in the future and begin to build the communication channels and intergovernance system that ensures that they can work together. I think that that's the really key thing is we get to define the future of the human species right now. Let's make sure it's a peaceful and pluralistic one because it's a good thing that we're getting to sort of test all of these different systems. And in many ways, this system is cleaning itself again. Yes, it will lead to a lot of pain in the short run, but it allows for experimentation uh, when the old system, let's be honest, had a lot of flaws then you really got to join me and us on this mission, Malcolm, because this is exactly what I see my work is about, right? So you can kind of already see, you know, some project or charter city doesn't like so much what the other one is doing and this and that dimension. And I'm always there and like, guys, sit on the same tape. I know you find the other guys here a bit boring or you don't like these ideas that the guys are hearing here, but please sit together on the same table and figure it out and learn from each other and just tolerate the difference that you're creating. The difference in viewpoints and cultures is beautiful, and it is what it's about. Yeah. Well, and this becomes really relevant because, you know, when I talk about the world today, um, a lot of people would get the perception that I see sort of this urban monoculture as the primary enemy, but not really. It's, it's not very competent. It's sort of falling apart on its own. Um, what scares me is that most of the groups with really high fertility rates right now are pretty hostile to people who don't think like them. They have uh, strict internal hierarchies. They do not believe in things like gender equality. They do not believe that people who don't think like them should exist often. What this means is that in the future, we haven't really had to deal with groups like that since World War II, have sort of global power. But uh, 50, 100 years from now, we are going to be dealing with groups like that. And the pluralistic groups, the groups that are okay with people who are different from them still existing, they need to team up and they need to work together because uh, if we don't work together, we will be stamped out. Yeah, amazing. Spontaneous idea. I would love to invite you and the pronatalist movement. Anyone is interested in that, let's go to one charter city. I mean, my favorite one is Prosper, where we can go somewhere else anywhere you want to. 
and debate some of these things and see what where oh this i would love that to. yeah 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 what else would uh, attract people like you or in the movement what would they need from a charter city what are the demands kind of if there's a well, new... i can tell you the one thing that mm -hmm. we need right now that i know we can't get from prospera uh so if i did it i'd probably create a different charter city is specifically uh an absolute promise that no one will limit our access to reproductive technology whether it's cloning human crispr anything like that because you know as as i say i believe that i think The, one of the types of groups that's going to be most successful are the ones that are engaging in genetic technology and they don't feel safe. You know, they all know me like we sort of act as a hub for these people. Uh, they don't feel safe anywhere in the world right now. And I don't think it makes sense with Prospera. Here's why. Prospera is first and foremost responsible to sort of its shareholders, not shareholders, but, you know, the, the people who live there. Right. And if people knew that people were engaging in genetic technology there. Uh, that could hurt its PR, which would hurt the assets of the companies that are set up there. So I, I do think that there is a sort of a place for, a, I guess I'd call it a Kaminoan charter city, um, which is just based around reproductive choice um, and based around technological choice. So, you know, any medical technology you want to use, no matter how dangerous, and there's a big de demand for that. But I think that's a different culture than Prospera. Prosperous culture is defined by, I think, extreme libertarianism, but also uh, responsibilities to shareholders. Uh, or I could be wrong here. Yeah, I think ideologically what you want to do perfectly fits within Prospera, right? That's what they want to be about, to allow these kinds of different formations of different cultures and groups. And also, you know, libertarianism basically says that consenting adults should have the freedom to enter these kinds of contracts and arrangements. And it's absolutely none of the business of mm -hmm. sort of a governing entity to make restrictions on these things with the limitation being correctly, as you say, on the PR side, right? So Prosper is a subdivision of the country of Honduras, right? So there is a cost to allowing controversial things. Right. So they're already getting a lot of hit pieces for like gene therapy and whatever, whatever, which is what we're already doing. Mm -hmm. But sort of add each of those things and, you know, you can't do an unlimited amount of that. Right. So but my solution for that is to diversify. Right. Mm -hmm. So to, to create more prosperous. Right. So have more places in other countries. So just become so the whole idea that of what Prospera is doing or standing for becomes more credible, more normal, something that's more mainstream and it's seen as a thing. All right, you can do it here or there. You have a bit more of like political capital with the host country or government you're in. Oh, we can just go somewhere else if you put that pressure on us. Or the journalistic hit pieces, you know, they can't hurt you as much. Or if they do, they even create anti-fragility because people are going to think like, hey, maybe that's my tribe there. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with what you're saying. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're being realistic about this. And I've also talked with some state governments about this already. The number of state governments that really want, because, you know, if you're running the pronatalist movement, one of the things that we do is we consult for state governments. And what they'll tell us is, look, we've got this rural land. We've got these islands. They're basically depopulated at this point. Is there anything you can do to inject back into this local economy? And I'm like, Faustian deal time. Um, so we, we already have some interest in potentially setting something up. We, of course, um, 
have some other ideological things that would make our group very different from the other charter cities. Specifically, one thing that we're looking at doing is only setting up in a very inhospitable environment. I'd want it to be somebody where like really cold um, uh, that otherwise cannot uh, grow food on its own and stuff like that. And there's a very specific reason for that. Um, I want it to be land that is very defensible that like even if somebody decided like we want to go back on our deal with you, it'd be very hard for them to do that. Two, I wanted to build a culture that would be similar to life on a spaceship. So by that, what I mean is if you already are building a culture that knows how to grow its own food and everything like that, you're going to have a much easier time adapting to interstellar travel, which is going to make you a natural recruiting environment for the first long-term space colonists, which will make your cultural group hugely disproportionately represented in the future of the species. And then the final thing that it will do is it will filter for colonists so that the only people who are there are the people who actually are willing to undergo daily hardship to want to be there, which I think really changes the day-to-day -day culture of a space. Uh, so it would, I think, feel very different from the other charter cities right now if I was to go ahead with this. Uh, but we have been talking with some people about this. Good, good. And there's an increased number of governments and jurisdictions around the world that is willing to do this. I think we've definitely made huge progress in making the idea of like a special economic zone kind of more credible, more widespread because there's thousands around the world. So by all means, let's keep uh, connecting on that and see where you can find your place to do exactly that. Um, That was juicy stuff, man, but I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's spicy. If your your audience yeah, likes yeah. it, check us out on Basecamp. Um, but I do think, I mean, just to come back to this recurring theme here, mm -hmm. the future of the world is charter cities. In a world with collapsing populations, uh, collapsing technophilic populations, any city that can experiment with, and, and, and small groups that can refill with, with, so like even if you can't motivate a high fertility rate, because you're intrinsically a small economy, um, you might be able to continue to recruit people from large countries in a way that can keep you economically viable. Also, you don't have the problem of leverage. So people need to keep in mind that, you know, leverage, if I take out $10, if I make a $10 investment and $8 of that in debt and $2 of that is equity, um, and my investment grows by 10%, that's a 50% growth in the equity investment. But if it shrinks by just 10%, that's a 50% reduction. Well, we set up the fabric of our society in these developed countries with the assumption of constant growth. Right. Um, and so we took out we like maxed out the leverage at the level of our cities, of our states, of our nation states, of our families, of our individuals. If things begin to shrink on average, that house of cards begins to collapse real quick. Um, and so what we sort of see the future of humanity as like when I think of what's the future of humanity look like, what it looks like is an interconnected network of what we call havens um, in our model which is not necessarily all. Um, so for example, examples of existing havens would be the Amish community, right? They're not exactly uh, a charter city, but they are a culturally isolated region that is to some extent economically separated from the regions around them and supply lines separated from the regions about them. Um, and when people look at the world today, uh, they're like, well, who has this figured out the most? Um, I also sort of see the first of the charter cities is Israel. That to me is the most successful and first charter city. And it's where I think that the successful charter cities will go 
And it does show that it's capable because it is the one developed country in the world today that has a high fertility rate. Um, and so it shows that you are able to culturally hack technophilic groups to have a sustainable fer fertility rate. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, you are actually, the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, both of us, uh, all of us are um, in that are interested in that movement and are contributing to it. So I invite everyone who's listening to join us. I really looking forward to staying connect with you, Malcolm, because I think we're working towards the same goals. Anything mm -hmm. else you want to direct our listeners' attention to to find you or your work or you to learn more about the things we just discussed? I mean, pernatalist.org, but I mean, it's just the Pernatalist Foundation. People can reach out to me if they're interested in working on this problem. As we say, a single family that has eight kids, if you do that for 11 generations, that's more descendants than live on Earth today. So it doesn't take many people to do this, but it takes a diversity of people if we want to maintain the existing pluralistic human culture. So anyone who's interested, reach out, you know, hopefully we can connect you with this wider cultural network for anybody who wants to take a crack at this with their own family or who's interested in, in weirder charter city models. Awesome. I'll also look into some of that stuff uh, for my future plans to have children together with my wife. Mm -hmm. So thanks for directing me towards that, Malcolm. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, have a great day. time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great